Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Severin. For those of you who don't be one of the pastors here, and uh, I don't normally preach, but when I do get a chance, I, I enjoy it. So, um, we're spending our summer going through the fruit of the spirit, and our foundational text is Galatians five. We spoke last week on love, our brother Cole Brown, and this week I'll be speaking on joy from Romans five. But before we jump into Romans, I want, to use, I want us to read Galatians 5 together to help provide some context for our series. So please open your Bibles. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. We'd really encourage you to open God's Word yourself and uh, to be a Berean and to study God's Word. So let's read this passage together, beginning in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. This is God's word. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There ends the reading of God's Word. Well, as Matthew shared in his pastoral note in this week's newsletter, if you had a chance to read that, and I would encourage you to do that, this series is all about Christ being formed in us. The fruit of the Spirit is simply this, the Holy Spirit of God who indwells all who are born again, manifesting the very attributes of God in our lives. Christianity is not outside in, but inside out. God, through the gospel, has taken out our hearts of stone and given us new hearts with godly affections that delight in God, that treasure Christ. The law is not what changes us. The law brings a conviction of sin, but the love of God, free, undeserved, lavish grace, poured out into the hearts of those who trust in Christ. That is what changes us. We are not under law. We are under grace. We are no longer slaves to the flesh. We can now live by the Spirit. For as our text we just read says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Last week, Cole Brown started the series off looking at love from 1 Corinthians 13. And he spoke of how love is not a verb. 
Many seemingly loving actions are described in 1 Corinthians 13, but they are void of love and so they are worthless. A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Action without love, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that it gains nothing and it makes us nothing. Cole directed us toward our motivations and how so often we're motivated by guilt, by pride, by manipulation, and not a true love for God or love for our neighbor. And ultimately, Cole revealed that this text was sketching a picture of love personified. We find that perfect personification of love in the person of Jesus Christ. God is love. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, demonstrated his love by dying for sinners, gladly laying down his life for us, my life for yours. As Jesus cried on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Amen? So today we get to explore joy. I have three points from my outline. The first one, point number one, good news of great joy. Point number two, the auger of suffering. And point number three, the essence of joy. Our primary text will be Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, although I will devote most of my time to the first five verses. So again, if you have your Bible, please turn to Romans 5, and I will read the first 11 verses. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it is an honor to read your word. It is an honor to preach your word. It is an honor to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that through the hearing of the word, Lord, that you would bring faith. Lord, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I do pray that you would increase our faith this morning, that we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would long to celebrate and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. To the ends of the earth, Lord, to the ends of the earth. Help us, Lord, today. Guard us and keep us from the evil one, we ask, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. So point number one, good news of great joy. 
The gospel, the good news, is glad tidings of great joy. So let's, let's celebrate Christmas in July. Let's go back briefly to that cold night in Bethlehem. Listen to what the angels declared to those shepherds. This is from Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Good news of great joy. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The therefore is referring to the past four chapters where Paul has been showing the vanity of human works and how through the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. How the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been justified. It's a big word. My mom explained it like this, just as if I've never sinned, just as if I've always obeyed. We've been justified, just as if we've never sinned, just as if we've always obeyed. And we have peace with God. Now let me ask you a question. When you think of peace, what do you think of? Now Andrew Vonderloff's going to be preaching on peace next week, so I don't want to steal his thunder, but in light of our text this morning, I think it's important to address. When we think of peace, what do we think of? If I was honest, sometimes when I think of peace with God, I think of a truce, a white flag of sorts. Both parties agree to put down arms, perhaps shake hands and walk away. The war is over, there's no more fighting, but the opposing sides aren't friends. The tensions haven't really been resolved, they're just tired of fighting. Perhaps you think of peace like Lord Cornwallis' surrender during the Revolutionary War. In 1781, Cornwallis was backed, had backed himself into a corner at Yorktown, and he's hoping for naval resupplies. But thanks to the French Navy, the resupplies never arrive, and General Washington surrounds him. And after a three-week siege, the British surrender. They wave the white flag or the white handkerchief. But Cornwallis himself refused to come out to greet Washington. He claimed illness, but no doubt his illness was pride. He hated to admit defeat. And instead, he sends his second-in-command, who presents his sword, which General Washington refused. Or perhaps you think of the more recent, 1978, I was one year old at the time, Camp David Peace Accords, where President Jimmy Carter served as a mediator between Egyptian President Anwar el-Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. As Jimmy Carter makes his TV announcement to the press, you witness both parties on either side of him rather rigid and stoic, and you can't help but wonder how long this is really going to last. Now, I use those two foils not to denigrate the relative peace that came from those agreements, but simply to illustrate that if we are honest at times, perhaps often, when we think of peace with God, we view it as suspect, as tenuous, as brittle. But friends, that is so far from the truth. When we think of peace with God, where our hearts should turn, is to the portrait of the prodigal son. As the son repents, he returns from his foolish revelries, 
Listen to what God's word says. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Friends, you have been justified by trusting in Christ and you have peace with your Father in heaven. Not simply a truce, a ceasefire, an armistice, but wholeness, completion, shalom, a celebration. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Let that pour into your heart, into my heart this morning, that we have peace with God. And so as a result of this good news, Going back to our text in Romans. This grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The gospel is what secures our everlasting joy. As the Westminster Catechism states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice, we exult, we boast. We have joyful confidence in hope. Hope in what? Ourselves, our good works, our glory? No. We hope in the glory of God, the finished work of Christ, what Christ has done on our behalf. We rejoice in the unshakable privileges of being reconciled to God, being a child of God, having peace with God. Rejoice in the promise that good things are coming. Hope is this absolute confidence in the promises of God that good things are coming. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says, later on in Romans 8, we have this confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see this glory, this glorious light at the end of the tunnel, and we are promised that Christ has secured that glory for us, and it produces joy in the life of the Christian. And by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit through the work of the Son of God, you and I have an intimate, personal relationship with our Father in heaven. You are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you're a child of God. You were created in God's image. You were created to be like your creator. You were created to be like God. Now there are, no doubt, certain attributes of God that obviously are not communicable or transferable to us. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere. God is uncreated. It is not and never will be us. But God is love. And that is a communicable attribute of God. An attribute of God that we ought to catch. As Cole cited last week from 1 John 4, beloved let, us, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves 
has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So God is love, and we ought to be filled with love. But God is also full of joy, and we ought to be filled with joy. And perhaps you ask, in light of of your own sin, and in light of this world we live in, in light of the terrors that we experience, can God really be joyful? Well, consider the story of the prodigal son. Consider that lost sheep and how heaven rejoices when it's found. Consider Zephaniah, which Stephen quoted when he was praying. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, city of peace. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Psalm 16, perhaps one of your favorites. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if you truly know God, if we are truly known by God, we cannot be sour and dour. An essential quality of being a Christian is joy. And again, to be certain, and and we'll clarify this in our next point, this is not a happy, clappy, naive joy. God who is full of joy is also a God who weeps, who mourns. He sees the evil and is affected by the evil of this world far more than you or I are. As I shared last week when we were talking about hell and, and God's justice and God's mercy, don't presume that you are more compassionate and more grieved by what happened in France and by what God is. God is not indifferent. God weeps. And yet, as Paul says, we can be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. So because of the gospel, we have joy. And if you haven't got joy, you haven't got the gospel. Behold, I bring you good news, that's the gospel, of great joy that will be for all people. Point number two, the auger of suffering. Well, that angel's herald on that cold Bethlehem night was only an inauguration. It wasn't the consummation. It announced the arrival of our king. But yet, we haven't arrived on that eternal shore yet. And so the glory fades. The sky darkens. And poor Joseph, the only accommodations he can find that night for his beautiful bride is a dirty old stable. And sweet Mary, in great pain, gives birth to a little bloody baby boy. And many years later, as the angel foretold, a sword pierced through her soul as a spear was pierced through her grown-up boy's bloody side. And Mary wept and grieved like no other woman on earth. Life is filled with suffering and sorrow. And Paul, who pens these words, knows suffering's bitter sting. 
In obedience to Christ, he followed Jesus into beatings, floggings, isolation, loneliness, betrayal, hunger, thirst, a life of suffering. He knows it. Unless we despair and think that it's all vain and meaningless, or unless we just long to stay up on that transfiguration mount with the glory of God and not come back down into the valleys of the shadows of death. Paul in verse 3 instructs us. Not only that, that glory, that hope of the glory of God, not only that glorious vision of the eternal day, the consummation where God makes all things new. But today, today we rejoice in our sufferings, in our disappointments, in our pain, and in our fight of faith. Paul brings us back into the darkness. He brings us back into the shadows of our lives, of our own travails, and he calls us to rejoice in our sufferings. How can we rejoice in our sufferings? We hate suffering. I hate suffering. We hate pain. Our flesh cringes at pain. At our basest level, we're driven by pure carnal desires. Instant gratification. Pursue pleasure, avoid pain. Pursue pleasure, avoid pain. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all driven by these selfish pleasures. So how can we rejoice? Well, remember Galatians 5. We rejoice in our sufferings by not walking in the flesh, but by walking in the Spirit. By lifting our gaze to see Jesus, the man of sorrows, who has conquered death, our greatest enemy. We remember that we have been crucified with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. Remember our Lord's promise. It's a promise we don't sometimes like to remember. In this world, you will have trouble, tribulation. You know the rest. But be of good cheer. Rejoice. Take heart. I have overcome the world. For the Christian, suffering is not meaningless. It is accomplishing something. Our suffering is redemptive. God, our loving Father, is the master artist. And with each stroke, with each stroke of suffering, he is chiseling and conforming by the Spirit of God, you and I, more and more into the character of Christ. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian, to be like Christ? So Paul continues, suffering produces endurance, Suffering forces us to stand our ground, to hold on tight, to weather the storm, to endure the chronic pain, the life of disability, the wayward child, the draining bank account, the unfaithful spouse, the belittling for believing that the word of God is sufficient. Suffering produces endurance. Count it all joy, James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, steadfastness, endurance. 
And so we endure. We endure the cold night. You shiver, you wonder, you worry, but you stand your ground. You long for the warm, brilliant sun to finally crest over that eastern horizon and drive away the cold, dark demons of doubt. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. The heat, the pressure, the hours, weeks, years, years, years spent in the crucible of our afflictions, whatever they may be, are forging in you and I the character of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Friends, a servant is not greater than his master. If you are going to follow Jesus, you will suffer. As Paul sought to encourage the church in Philippi, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that I say this with all sincerity. Sincerity, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, your suffering is meaningless. It's meaningless. Part of my story of how I came to faith in Christ growing up in a Christian home began to, to want nothing to do with Jesus and I embraced a pretty nihilistic view of the world. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow you die. There's no real point. And yet in God's providence, I started reading the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it, right in the middle of the Old Testament. And the wisest man, Solomon, the preacher, writes these, these words. And, and he says, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And it's true. Without Christ, your suffering is meaningless. Vanity. So I plead with you, as the writer of Ecclesiastes pleads with you, remember your creator. Remember your creator. God created you. He loves you. He sent Christ to atone for your sins and he calls you to repent. And he makes our suffering redemptive. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So endurance produces character and character produces hope. As we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ, we see the evidence of our faith. We find our unbelief burning away. Our faith is resolved, emboldened, made like steel. We find ourselves longing more for the kingdom of God. We find ourselves longing to read God's word, to gather with the saints, to share the hope that we have in Christ. We find strength to resist the various temptations and, and sins that so easily creep in on us. We find patience and forbearance. We find ourselves reaching out to the weak and to the poor. 
We're quick to forgive. We're slow to anger. And the more we see this character of Christ being formed in us, the more we hope and long for the fullness of God. Paul, later on in Romans, will say this. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen to our Lord's words. Right before his betrayal and crucifixion, he says these words in John 16 to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Beautiful words. Beautiful words. Well, being a bit vulnerable to you all, since our son, Colts or John, was born, With Down syndrome, my wife and I read that passage with tears. What do you do when the joy that a child has been born into the world is filled with sorrow? What do you do when the delight of a healthy child is overshadowed by disability? Listen to Henry Nouwen from his book, Making All Things New. Our life is a short time in expectation, a time in which sadness and joy kiss each other at every moment. There is a quality of sadness that pervades all the moments of our lives. It seems there is no such thing as a clear-cut, pure joy, but that even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. In every satisfaction, there is an awareness of limitations. In every success, there is the fear of jealousy. Behind every smile, there is a tear. In every embrace, there is loneliness. In every friendship distance, in all forms of light, there is the knowledge of surrounding darkness. But this intimate experience in which every bit of life is touched by a bit of death can point us beyond the limits of our existence. It can do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with perfect joy, a joy that no one shall take away from us. And so in that auger of suffering, Christ has promised that our sorrow will turn into joy. These momentary light afflictions, they bore down deep into our soul. And as painful as they are, they create reservoirs for God's love to be poured into our hearts where we can experience this eternal weight of glory. Point number three, the essence of joy. So what is a succinct description or definition of joy? Well, let's go to God's word one more time. Turn to Psalm 16. We already read it this morning, but I would encourage you to turn the pages of your Bible to Psalm 16. And let's read 
together. This last verse. The psalm, it's a messianic psalm. And I didn't know this until studying. It's actually quoted by Peter in his first sermon in Acts 2. It's quoted by Paul in his first sermon in Acts 13 at Antioch. And you can, you can read it for yourself, Acts 2, Acts 13. But this psalm is filled with messianic hope. In the midst of affliction and fear, in the midst of suffering, the psalmist reminds himself that the Lord is his portion, that God won't let his Holy One see decay or corruption, and that his inheritance in the Lord is beautiful. And in verse 11, it says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist is using parallelism. Saying the same thing two different ways. So look at those last two lines. In your presence or at your right hand, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. So in its essence, what is joy? God's pleasure. You and I experiencing, enjoying forever the pleasures of God. Joy, as God's word tells us here, is experiencing the pleasure of God. God is pleased with you, Christian. God delights in you, Christian. That is the essence of joy, the pleasure of God. So if that is the essence, how does that character of Christ the pleasure of God, that fruit of the Spirit manifests itself in our lives. Well, let's look at verse 5 in Romans. Go back to Romans, sorry. <laughs> Romans chapter 5. Hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured and is being poured poured into our hearts. This is not simply historical facts or truth. This is a profound, deep, spiritual experience. This pleasure of God rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ is continually poured out and poured out and poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the verb tense here in this text helps illuminate that reality for us. That first verb there, God's love has been poured, is actually in the perfect tense. That means it's an action that has happened in the past and is ongoing and continuous. God's love has been poured out and is being poured out and will continue to be poured out and will continue to be poured out. And yet the verb through the Holy Spirit who has been given is in the aorist tense. It happened in the past, a point in time, complete, complete once and for all. So you see the point. You see Paul's point here. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Paul will say later on in Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. But the point here is that the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, please hear me, is not some static idea. 
It's not some static idea. It is an ongoing experience, an ongoing encounter, an ongoing relationship. The Holy Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit is always seeking to glorify the Son, to draw our attention, to draw our affections, to direct our hearts back to him, to experience the pouring out of the love of God into our hearts more and more. As Paul will tell the church in Thessalonica, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. It's an ongoing, deepening, filling experience. So the essence of joy is experiencing the pleasure of God, experiencing the love of God. So let me ask you, are you willing? Are you desiring? Are you longing to experience this pouring out into your hearts? Is your heart filled with joy? Is your heart filled with the pleasure of God? Now, during our summer in the NICU with Coulter, our dear brother Dan Garfield would often come up to me and, up to me and ask me, is your heart happy in Jesus? Are you experiencing the love of God? Are you, are you enjoying God? Or am I stagnant, static, perhaps bitter? If you ask me, does Jesus love you? I said, yes, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. But in all honesty, at times when Dan asked me, is your heart happy in Jesus? It wasn't. I was not delighting and I was not enjoying and experiencing the precious reality of the love of God being poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask you, do you want more of God's love poured out into your hearts or are you just content with some static idea? Don't simply say, I'm good. It's like if your spouse asks you, do you want to go on a date? You're like, no, I'm good, we're married. That's not how it works, right? You love your spouse and you take pleasure in them and you want to be with them and be with them and be with them. It's an ongoing, continual pouring out. My life for yours, my life for yours. It's a joy. So the essence of joy is not a dry doctrine. It is a living experience, a work of the Holy Spirit upon the human heart that brings an awareness and an experience of God's pleasure. God is pleased with you. Your Father in heaven loves you. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You are at peace with God. Your Father's loving embrace is real. And you will experience that love more and more as you meditate upon the person and the work of his Son. And that's what Paul does right after that passage. I'm not going to take time to go into it, but verse 6, he just goes back to the gospel and he just reminds them of the gospel. And as we remind ourselves of the gospel, that love of God pours out into our hearts. So in closing, a few obstacles to joy in experiencing the pleasures of God. One obstacle, direction. What is your heart directed towards? Is it directed towards the love of God, the kingdom of God? C.S. Lewis wrote an incredible book called The Weight of Glory. And the book was originally a series of sermons that Paul, that Paul, <laughs> C.S. Lewis preached 
1942 during World War II. And those sermons actually came from an article that C.S. Lewis published in 1941 called The Weight of Glory. And it's a short read. It's nine pages. And I have five copies. And after the service, if you've not read The Weight of Glory, if you just don't have time to read a book, uh, The Weight of Glory, this is 30 minutes. And it is a beautiful read um, that expresses this view of the pleasure of God and the weight of glory, of being loved by God. And I would ask you, if you want God's love to be poured out more and more and you, you feel like perhaps your, your, your joy or your view of God is static, then, then please come up and I have a few copies. You can obviously find this too online. Um, but let me read uh, a familiar part of the quote uh, from this uh, article and then read another part that's not so familiar. C.S. Lewis says this, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And then he goes on to speak about this infinite joy of being one in whom God is pleased, one in whom God delights in. And he says this, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is, end quote. Is the love of God, the pleasure of God, a static idea, a dry doctrine for you, or is it a living experience, an infinite joy? What is your heart directed towards? Another obstacle, doubt. In the midst of suffering, we're tempted to doubt God. We often doubt in two ways. We doubt God's love for us. If God loved me, this wouldn't be happening. I must be cursed because this is happening. I must not be God's child since this is happening. And sadly, we see this this lie, this deception propagated through prosperity theology. Now, there's nothing wrong with prosperity But this false teaching, this full gospel, so to speak, spreads the lie that if you're a child of the king, you should be living the good life, high on the hog, your best life now, full of blessing and wholeness, free from sickness and setback. Just name it and claim it. And it is a twisted view of God's economy. It's a false assumption that we are living in that full consummation epic where all God's enemies have been put under his feet. But as the writer of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. These are the shadow lands, to quote C.S. Lewis. (laughs) So we doubt God's love in the midst of suffering. And sadly, our faith sours even more and a deeper doubt takes root. We doubt God's existence. Since my life is filled with suffering, this good God must not even exist. This is just some opiate for the masses to pacify us and numb us to the pains of this world. And yet again, it is the pride of man not looking to Jesus Christ and seeing that the sovereign artist of all has divine redemptive purposes for the dark hues of our suffering. And as we fall prey to these demonic doubts, it leads to despair and hopelessness, which is the very antithesis of joy.
For joy is rooted in hope of the glory of God. And if there's nothing to hope for, then there is nothing to rejoice in. Point number three, obstacle, disobedience. As Paul told us, we are not justified by our works, but by faith in Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. Amen? Amen. (laughs) But God has prepared good work for us to walk in. We ought to be zealous for good deeds. Amen? Amen. If we are God's children, then we'll love him. We'll want to follow him. We'll want to be like Jesus. A life of unrepented sin and disobedience quenches and grieves the Holy Spirit. And God has called us to perfect holiness out of reverence for Christ, to be his spiritual house, living stones, consecrated, set apart for holy purposes. So if your life is filled with selfishness and greed, you will be robbed of joy. If you're lazy and you refuse to follow Jesus, you will miss the celebration. The devil is real and he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy and so we must fight the good fight of faith and walk in obedience, strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, overflowing with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a few applications for how we can cultivate this joy, and then we're done. First, consider and pray. Take time. Take time. Find time. We find time to do a host of other things. Find time to be alone with God, to read his word, and to pray. Open your Bible, and with the psalmist, consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Consider, meditate, reflect, look closely upon the greatest act of love. Witness him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. In the morning, cry out to God, satisfy my soul. Pour your love into my heart by the Holy Spirit. Feed me. I long for you. I thirst for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Serve me. Ask the king of kings to serve you. That's what he came to do. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So ask him. Wake up in the morning and say, suffering servant, serve me. Man of sorrows, serve me. Life is hard full of pain. I'm tired. I'm alone. Please pour out your love into my heart by the Holy Spirit that I might find my heart truly happy in Jesus, truly joyful in Jesus. Second thing we can do is trust and obey. (laughs) For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust. Trust that your Father's pleased with you because of the finished work of Christ. The Father welcomes you home. He embraces you. He set his affection on you. You are the apple of his eye. Trust that. Believe that. Don't doubt God's love in the midst of suffering. Let suffering do its work. Let that auger of affliction bore deep into your soul. And in that recess, may the love of God be poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. Walk in obedience. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Trust that there's blessing in obedience. God has wonderful, joyful works for you and I to do. And finally, rejoice in the Lord always. 
Discipline your mind. Take your thoughts captive. There's lots of things to complain about, but make them obedient to Christ and rejoice. Don't buy all the excuses. There's hosts of them. You've got yours, I've got mine. You don't know my story, you don't know my past, the abuse, the neglect. I've got this diagnosis or this proclivity or this spouse or I don't have a spouse. Or these kids. Friends, don't play the victim. Don't play the victim. We all have our trials and God sympathizes with us in our weakness. But to every single Christian, irrespective of our disclaimers and our footnotes, our Father in love commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We have good news of great joy. We are justified by faith in Christ and we have peace with God. We can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amidst our sufferings because of the gospel, we can have joyful confidence that our loving Heavenly Father is at work, crafting, forging, refining, creating for us an eternal weight of glory. The love of God has been poured and will continue to be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So is your life marked by joy? If not, consider once again the gospel. Look to your risen Savior and may your sorrow be turned to joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he promised to turn our sorrows into joy. He promised that these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Help us today, Lord, to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, the risen Savior, to truly trust him, to truly obey him, to delight in him, to cry out to him that he would pour his love more and more into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this table that you have set that again gives us a tangible reminder, a representation of your love, your life poured out. My life for yours. Lord, and as we come to this table, may we rejoice. May we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll come up together and take the elements and then hold on to them and then one of the uh, brothers will lead us in communion.